0: Welcome. My name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode 57. Today, I welcome Canadian journalist, author, and documentary producer at TVO and anchor of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda, Steve Pakin. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. How was yeah. your hockey game
1: uh you know i'm i made it through
0: yeah <laughs> yes you play you play weekly yeah every yeah? tuesday
1: night from 10 till about 11:15, and uh get off the ice and you and i are sitting here talking at almost midnight yeah and uh so it usually takes me about an hour hour and a half after playing hockey to calm down and fall asleep there you go so hopefully that won't happen while we're talking well if we do we'll hear a big thud Head <laughs> hitting the, the table
0: on on, on the mics um, now I wanted to ask you: Should I call you Doctor Steve? Oh, for crying out, you're kidding! Of course. Well, you've <laughs> you've got a bunch of honorary doctorates, eh? Apparently. Yeah. Uh, like, did you ever think, like, you're from Hamilton? Yep. Did you ever think, growing up in Hamilton, that one day you're gonna have all these universities and, and, and colleges um, bequeathing you with with doctorates?
1: What do you think? <laughs> not a, of course not. Not at all. Eh? Not a chance. No, I grew up on the West Mountain in Hamilton. And had a very nice, you know, middle class existence in the Steel City and um, did not foresee anything turning out the way it's turned out. I mean, who just, uh, anyway, it's, it's, yeah. it's all kind of strange.
0: I watched your, um, your podcast episode. Oh, yeah. Recently. Yeah. Um, and uh, you being from the Hammer, I'm wondering, do you, have you listened to CBC's uh, newest, one of their new podcasts, Someone Knows Something?
1: No, I have not heard that one.
0: Oh, it's it's amazing. It's it's. Um, What's it about? So we're in season two now, and season. So this. Oh wait a uh, minute! I've heard about this. Yes, yeah. I have
1: heard of this. I haven't. I've have not listened to it yet, but I have heard about it. Yes. Yeah.
0: So this case takes place um, in Hamilton's about this this girl who got proposed on a on on a TV show that they were having over New Year's Eve. Hmm. And literally, the next day, went missing. Right. So this um, documentary producer is sort of following that story along and trying to pick up some pieces and, and investigate it. Sort of like the sort of the the whole.
1: Answer to Serial. I was just going to say that that yeah. one I did listen to actually. That was phenomenal. Yeah, I listened to. I wondered what all the fuss was about, so I did listen to every episode of that. Yeah. But I subscribe to. You know, you appreciate this but for, for the job that I do. Yeah. I subscribe. Uh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe twenty, twenty-five podcasts I listen wow. to. On a and, regular basis? Oh, yeah. every Wow. All the time. And I go to sleep with listening to podcasts as well.
0: Which ones do you listen to?
1: Oh, where do I start? I mean, uh, first of all, all the Sunday talk shows, of course, uh, on okay. U.S. politics. Okay. So, this week with Stephanopoulos, Meet the Press, Fox News Sunday, wow. John Dickerson on uh, Face the Nation. Um, I, I need a big fix of sports, so I get uh, you know Bob McCown on on the fan. Prime time, yeah. 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 Uh, Couple different Red Sox podcasts because I'm a bit of a nut for them, so okay. there's, there's lots of that. And uh, you know, the Sunday edition on CBC, I really like that. Um, oh, I'm forgetting a bunch, but you know, it's all it's all like oh, all the all the uh, Radio Free GOP, the Axe Files, you know, lots of stuff on U.S. politics. You may have heard that that a kind of an interesting wow. election this year. So I've tried to they stay up did, on that, didn't they? They did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now. Y- being so interested in U.S. politics, I'm curious. Did you ever have because you've been at TVO, yeah, for for many many years, and we'll get to a little bit of that. Um, have you ever had an inkling or a desire to to go down south and and you know cover exclusively like life in America and, and American politics? No, not at all. Why? And, <laughs> and, and, and any reason why?
1: Uh, I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian. I like it here. My life is here. My family is here. My interests are here. I like to think of myself as a very happy, proud Canadian, and therefore, um, you know, the stuff that interests me and the, and the people I know and care about are all up here. Yeah. I did live in the States for one year. I went to Boston University after University of Toronto. This is yes. in the early 80s. Yeah. And so I had the experience of living in a big American city for a full calendar year, yeah. so I know what that's about. And, um, I, you know, I don't have any illusions about how the grass is supposedly greener down there. It's not. Uh, so I'm I'm very happy here, and we'll stay here, uh, I hope, for uh, the rest of my life.
0: You've spent most of your career in public broadcasting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is that on purpose? For sure. Yeah. So yeah. tell tell me about your.
1: T- tell me about that. Well, I just think public broadcasting has a different mission from private broadcasting. I don't say it has a better one. I just say it has a different one. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, I am, I am driven to engage with an audience on a sort of host-citizen basis as opposed to a host-delivering-eyeballs-to-advertisers basis. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but the reality is I've had the great privilege of being able to interview people at TVO for 20-plus years without ever having to interrupt an interview and say, hold that thought, premier, I'm going to go sell some toothpaste, we'll be right back. Now, I get that, you know what, I get that the private sector has the profit motive and has to do that to stay on the air, and that's terrific, but we have, I think, a different mission in public broadcasting, uh, online and on air, and uh, I just am drawn to that mission more. Now, you you know, it's... uh, it's a different existence. It's a different world. It's not, I wouldn't say that I've lived a balanced life. You know, it's sure. you're all in. You're all in on that. It's 80 yeah. hours a week. It's wow. seven days a week when the agenda's on the air. I work every day. Um, but, you know, it, this is the life I've chosen, and I love it.
0: Nice, nice. I want to get to some questions from, uh, from, from listeners. Um, actually, the first one's not a question, but it's a comment. So this comes from Greg, Greg Nisbet. He says, not a question for me, just a sincere thank you for so many years of exceptional, objective journalism. So that comes from Greg.
1: Am I related to him?
0: I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
1: I'm not. No, I'm not. That's lovely to hear. Thank you, yeah. Greg. That's nice.
0: Uh, Faiza, who's my sister, uh, wants to know, what is your favorite thing about Canada? And what is your least favorite thing about Canada? You talked about the grass is not mm. greener on the other side. Right. You know?
1: I hope I'm not being naive in answering this question. Yeah? Yeah. But when I look at what's just transpired south of the border, Mm. I do think Canada is a kinder, gentler society. I think we're a little more civil up here, maybe Mm -hmm. a lot more civil. Well, Mm -hmm. certainly lately we're a lot more civil. I like that about Canada. Uh, We seem to – I remember once – you know, I've had the pleasure – I've had the misfortune, I guess is probably a better word, of being the moderator in six election debates, three provincial and three federal – and I remember somebody asking me, you know, um, you know, what wh- what happens when you when you've done a leader's debate and somebody does what Donald Trump has done yeah. during the course of his debates? And I said, you know, that's never happened. I've never had to moderate a debate where one of the candidates just had a complete disregard for the truth and was prepared to act in a completely unconventional frankly, uh, uncivilized and, in my view, unacceptable way. Uh, And therefore, that kind of issue has never come up in any debate that I've moderated. Uh, And and I appreciate that. I I mean, our leaders are essentially, you know, sane people up here. (laughs) And they, um, thankfully, have never behaved like that during a debate. So that's Canada, and I like that about Canada.
0: Yeah. Did you, as you were watching some of the debates, um... I can just imagine where you are screaming at the television, saying, "You got to stop him!" Or like, what not really, because I I
1: just thought it was hopeless. I just thought, it, really? it, it, you know, unless uh, unless an anchor is prepared to really get in there, unless mm-hmm. the moderator really gets in there and says, you know, stop talking. She's in the middle of an answer. You have to let her finish. Mm-hmm. And then when you finish, you know, when she when she finishes, then you will talk, and I will not let her interrupt you either. You mm-hmm. know there got to be some Marcus of Queensbury rules here or else the whole thing is just a a train wreck. And I think that's what it was down there. First, you know, starting with the Republican primary uh, debates when there were whatever, 12 or 14 of them on the stage all Mm -hmm. at once, and then the presidential debates. I mean, I suppose they were exciting, interesting, you know, spectacles, television spectacles. But, um, you know, did it advance anybody's understanding of... Anything? You know, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt, it just felt all very um, unhelpful and bizarre to me.
0: It was almost like a perfect scripted reality TV show. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was really strange. Um, At least, do you have a least favorite thing
1: about Canada? Least favorite thing about Canada? I don't know. Maybe that the Leafs haven't won a Stanley Cup in (laughs) fifty years. It's coming though. It's coming. It's soon. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's soon, but it's coming.
0: They got the kids on the team that are really, really. I like teams.
1: you know what I went to a game. I go to one or two games a year because it's just you know it's pretty expensive to get tickets. So I go to one or two games a year, and uh, went the other night when they beat the Capitals four two. And you know what? They're an exciting team to watch. Yeah. They're good young kids. They're a good exciting team. So I like that about them. And and uh, you know the, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series this year. So. Um, that's a 108-year drought come to an end. The leaf drought's only 50 years, so... You're not saying we have 50-plus more years to go. No, I'm saying uh, miracles obviously <laughs> miracles. can happen, and therefore, you know, it <laughs> might not be that far away. <laughs> That's
0: so true. Um, Randy Matheson has a few questions. Um, he had a TVO question, which I think we uh, went through, but he wants to ask you, um, what does the future hold for investigative journalism?
1: Uh, an excellent question, and I just have no idea. I mean, yeah. in some respects, in some respects, this is a great exciting, obviously completely disruptive time in journalism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fantastic journalism being done right now. There's a lot of horrendous journalism being done right now. Uh, obviously, the Internet has has completely changed all the rules, and legacy media um, just have no clue what's around the corner, how long they're going to be around for, et cetera, et cetera. But in the midst of, of everything, I mm-hmm. still think that there's wonderful investigative journalism being done. Do you remember, did you see the movie Spotlight? I've been wanting to watch that, but yeah, I did, You know, the Boston Globe investigative team and the the, uh, abuses in the Catholic Church that took place decades ago. That's what the movie was about. And I remember getting to the end end of the movie feeling utterly depressed, thinking that because of everything that's happening in journalism today, that story couldn't be broken because all the investigative units have been torn down and it's all about clicks now and aggregators and... There's just not enough original investigative journalism being done anymore. Yeah. And I tweeted that, or I think I did a blog post on that for the TVO website. And the guy who actually runs the Spotlight team for the Globe emailed me, and he said, actually, the unit still exists, and we're bigger now than we were before. Wow. So don't get too depressed. Don't fret. So that encouraged me.
0: That's nice. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's always good to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, You you talked about... um, you know, some of the online news, and Randy has a continuing question. Uh, He wants to know your thoughts about this struggle of fake news.
1: Oh, that's the show we did today, actually. Okay. That was tonight's show uh, on the agenda. Yeah, I think it's um, obviously an appalling trend, and I'm deeply, deeply concerned about it. Um, I think one of the lessons of this past election campaign was that for a huge chunk of America, facts don't matter, and, and... truth telling doesn't matter and the quest for accurate information just doesn't matter and how the candidates make you feel is more important mm-hmm. and that's important for us to know it's important for us to understand why that may be the case before we try to fix it but I'll tell you it, uh, it you know you're getting me on a rough night here because yeah. uh, again I, I mean I could get very depressed about the future of journalism in a world where facts don't matter so we really need to figure this out because I've spent 35 years trying to get the facts as accurate as possible. Yeah. And apparently, one of the candidates in the US election got a lot of votes, got millions of votes, tens of millions of votes from people, many of whom didn't care about the facts. Didn't care, yeah. So I really, need, I really want to understand this phenomenon a whole lot better.
0: And he continues to tweet out non factual stuff.
1: Yeah. And it's really strange. You know, I, I, there's a politician from northern Ontario named David Ramsey who mm-hmm. uh, started his life as a new Democrat MPP at Queen's Park and actually crossed the floor, became a liberal MPP, cabinet minister for Dalton McGuinty for a while. And he once said to me, the best politicians, he sort of he pointed at his head, said they're smart, and he pointed at his heart and said they have heart, they're compassionate. And then he pointed at his stomach and he says, and they got guts. They got, they got, a good f- they got guts and they got a good feeling in their gut for what people want. Hmm. And I thought that's an interesting combination. Those three qualities, you know, if you're, if you're good in all three of those areas, mm-hmm. you're going to be a really good politician. And I don't know if that's the case anymore. Yeah. I don't know if you actually have to be smart or have to have heart or have to have guts. Maybe all you got to have is an overactive Twitter account and <laughs> just say whatever the hell you want and... And, um, and who knows? I don't know. I mean, obviously, all the rules are... D- I don't know if all the rules have changed or if just yeah. this one candidate was able to change the rules for his particular circumstance, yeah. and, uh, and it's a one-off. I mean, we're not going to know for a decade, so we'll keep an eye on it. Well, do we
0: need to be concerned then here in Canada about, um, about politicians that sort of see that playbook and say, okay, you know... Like, for, for me, one example would be Kelly Leach. You know, who says everywhere she goes, people are talking about Canadian values, and that's the most important thing to them. Right. Um, and we need to make sure that we screen everybody to make sure they have Canadian values and and whatever that actually means. Um, I'm curious, do we need to be weary of of people copycatting that playbook?
1: Well, I would just say we don't. We really ought not to be smug about mm. the fact that because we're Canadians we think we are immune to all of the factors that uh, and all of the the trends that are happening in the United States yeah um you know we just uh, i'm in the i'm in the uh, hopefully in the understanding trends business i'm i'm hopefully in the understanding facts trying to acquire facts trying to get as close to whatever the truth is as possible mm-hmm. and then analyzing that uh, facilitating discussions about that, um, doing programs about that—that's what I think yeah. I'm. That's the business I think I'm in, and I, you know, I, I hope the rest. I, I hope enough of the people in Canada still care about that, uh, that there's still a place on the, on the broadcasting and online landscape for a media outlet that wants to do that. I, well, I hope so. Me
0: too. You know, we can only hope so. Um, Laurie. Has a question, so related to fake news, um, and and I thought this I had never heard of this term, but there's this emergence of what's called yellow journalism. You're you're are you familiar?
1: Well, the, what I understand that term to mean yeah. is just sort of scandal sheet journalism. It's yeah, just, that's what I interpret it to mean.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, um, you know, is there is there value in that, or is it is or is that just as as dangerous?
1: I don't know. It's not my thing. I mean, yeah. you know, that's the yellow journalism is nothing that particularly interests me. If you're mm. talking about the scandal sheets or the tabloids yeah. or yeah. all of that business, I mean, I guess there's a place for it for, for entertainment value, but, but I'm more interested in, sort of serious analysis about big issues and and thoughtful debates. And I am, you know, I am of the view that if there are more of us doing that, it mm-hmm. has the ability to engage more citizens. To raise the level of awareness and understanding of how our country, province, city, how it all works, and it's the best way I think to keep politicians accountable and to keep citizens engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to do. So
0: I want to end off with, or end off the, uh, the the, the listener submission of this. Um, this question comes from Anise. Um You know, he says you've interviewed people from all aspects of life: politicians, activists, musicians. Podcasters, uh, artists, authors, athletes—is um, there something that you've gotten from your guests, whether it's something they said or something that they've done, that really got you excited?
1: Oh, that happens every day. I—the okay. beauty of my job is—I wake up every day and I know I'm going to go into work and learn something new, and mm. that's what keeps me going back. I mean, I don't—I not don't, i used to work at CBC. I probably did a thousand news pieces for the six o'clock news at CBC. Yeah. So you go in and you learn something new every day and then came to TVO. I probably interviewed 20,000 people since I've been at TVO. Uh, and, you know, it's a rare, rare day where I come into work and I don't learn something new. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's what it's all about.
0: When, when I think of TVO, I think of two things. I think of you and I think of polka dot door. <laughs> <laughs> um, what has kept you... You know, because you've worked at CBC, and I know you've got this passion for for public broadcasting. Why TVO? I'm very curious Oh, about I've the...
1: been attracted to the mission of TVO even before I started working there. It's interesting. Okay. I, I Even when I worked at CBC, I used to give money to TVO because I watched the channel, and I remember thinking, oh, they do good documentaries, and I like the programs they do. So mm-hmm. I, I was a member before I was an employee. <laughs> and... I'm, uh, you know, it's uh, just a handful of very simple reasons why I work there. Number one, I love the mission of the place, right? Yeah. To engage people at the dawn of the 21st century in the big issues of our time, provide a kind of a thoughtful forum in which people can engage on those issues, mm-hmm. engage with people as citizens and not as potential eyeballs for advertisers. I mean, mm-hmm. that's our, you know, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, that's what our mission is, and to do it on television and online, mm-hmm. you know, through all the content we create, be it television programs, one-on-ones, Debates, uh, blog posts, uh, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, whatever. So I love that mission. Yeah. Uh, Number two, I have a lot of freedom there, you know. Uh, The line between having an idea and seeing it on the air is a very short line. Hmm. At lots of other places, I think it's a longer line. Number three, an hour, no commercials every night. I mean, how great is that? That's amazing. (laughs) It's phenomenal. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. Um, Number four, I really like the people I work with. I think they're all like me. I think they're all sort of... When I say like me, I mean I think they're all attracted to that to that mission of the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's no question that all of the people who work on the agenda at TVO could work somewhere else and make more money. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. I think they don't because they like what we're doing, yeah. and they like the they like the freedom, they like the format, they like all that stuff about TVO that makes it. I think unique on the dial. I mean, I, I don't know. Let me ask you. There's 500 channels or whatever, 1,000 channels out there. There's the Internet. There's everything. Yeah. I look around. I don't see anything else like TVO out there.
0: No, there isn't.
1: That's my feeling.
0: I'm, I'm very interested. I, we always hear these discussions around the CBC and funding and taking away. They take so much. I very. I don't think I've ever heard anyone at the provincial level of government, say, so you know what, we need to start defunding
1: TVO? Well, okay, Here's the, the, the um, reality is yeah. that, you know, first of all, we're grateful to the province of Ontario for the allocation that we do get to keep the lights on. Yeah. And the fact is, during my time at TVO, I have worked there uh, while all three parties currently represented in the legislature have been in power. Mm-hmm. So this is not a partisan comment, what I'm about to make. We're grateful to, you know, whoever's signing the checks to keep the lights on. Uh, having said that, it certainly doesn't cover the whole nut, sure. and we do rely on corporate underwriting, and we do rely on Mr. and Mrs. Everyday Ontario uh, to help us stay on the air. And people are incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, people are already paying. I think three bucks a year per person for TVO. I yeah. mean, I think it's a steal. I really do. I think it's a steal.
0: Absolutely, that's it. Eh? That's
1: it. It's a it's a very modest amount of money, and considering. You know, what we put out for that kind of money, I think it's it's a great deal. Uh, So even though people are already paying for TVO through their taxes, there's still tens of thousands more that actually go into their pockets and give us extra because they like our mission, they like what we're doing. Mm -hmm. They see the value in it. Um, So uh, what am I saying here? I guess I would encourage more people to do (laughs) that because it'll allow us to keep the lights on and keep doing stuff that people like. But... uh, I've always seen the value in it since before I started working there, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that other people do too.
0: Yeah. You've uh, been known to be, I, th- I think you won an award of, as one of the most objective newscaster or broadcaster, something along those lines. I'm very curious, how do you stay so objective and not let your personal opinions get in the way?
1: I th- First of all, uh, if that's your observation, I appreciate that because yeah. that—that that is Absolutely, what I fervently try hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember did a little panel discussion the other the other day at something, and one of the guys on the panel who was with me, who's been in politics a long, long time, uh, said, "You know, this Paken guy's okay. You know, I've known him for 20 <laughs> years, and I have no idea who he votes for. So that's good. That's what I try. To know. To, yeah. Well, I'd, that's what I try to be. I try to be obviously a uh, an equal opportunity offender and a and <laughs> a sort of unbiased." neutral guy um, who thinks everybody gets a fair shot. I I think one of the things I bring to the job is that I've covered politics for a long time and I've talked to a lot of people affiliated with politics and I know that most of the big decisions that governments make are difficult and that the amount of evidence that decision makers have to make those decisions is never 90% of the facts on one side of the argument and 10% on the other side.
0: Yeah,
1: It's almost always 51-49. Hmm. I remember Dalton McGuinty telling me once, 20, 24th Premier of Ontario, saying, by the time an issue gets to my desk, the facts could be 51-49 one, you know, one way versus the other. Then you make your decision, and two weeks later it could be 51-49 the other way. Hmm. I mean, it's really, there's so many compelling arguments on one side as the other. At the end of the day, you just have to make a decision and, and hope for the best. Uh, John Robarts, who was Premier of Ontario in the 1960s, the 17th Premier of Ontario, used to say, by the time an issue gets to my desk, I can flip a coin to decide how to resolve it because the arguments are equally good both ways. Mm. So when you ask, how do I stay neutral and how do I not, you know, allow opinions to show, I think it's because I realize issues are complex. Mm. And uh, you know there's very few issues we're going to debate on the agenda by virtue of the nature of the show itself, yeah, where there's really nothing to debate, you know they're always complicated issues yeah, and so and and I don't think I'm any smarter than the next guy to figure out how they should be resolved, so that's why it's not a problem for me
0: you you mentioned McGinty there, I'm curious what are your thoughts on what his
1: what his legacy is going to be? I can't tell you what his legacy is going to be because um it's funny, I mean, not to name drop too much here, but but uh, I, I have come over the last 15 years or so to become an acquaintance of Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, okay. 39th president of the United States. Through some fortuitous circumstances, I've, I've been able to be in his company four or five times over the last wow. several years. and And, you know, he said something to me many years ago about, you know, he's considered one of the great maybe the greatest ex-presidents ever. He's done so much. He's been the longest-serving, if I can use that word, ex-president in American history. Yeah. And he's done great things as an ex-president. His Mm -hmm. presidency, you know, more controversial, lots of critics, but his Mm -hmm. ex-presidency, I think virtually everybody agrees. It's been fantastic. And when I asked him many years ago whether he's surprised at the increasingly positive reviews he's getting Mm -hmm. during his... Now, very, very long ex-presidency, right? It's, how long is it now? 36 years. Wow. Uh, he said, no, I'm not surprised at all. He said, it's inevitable. Uh, the longer I'm out of office, the more people can reevaluate my time. Yeah. And they can make, uh, you know, they can come to different conclusions. And I think that's the case with Dalton McGinty so, well. It's the case with any politician, you know? Mm. What you're going to say about Dalton McGinty a year after he stepped down Yeah. and what you're going to say about him 25 years from now could be totally different things. Yeah.
0: That is so so true. Um, You've been an election debate moderator, and I just realized you don't do that
1: anymore. Well, I didn't do it in the last election campaign because uh, I never got asked. You never okay. (laughs)
0: Um, How do you prepare for something like that?
1: Well, you you, you read everything. You talk to everybody. I mean, that's essentially what you do. You want to be as up on everything as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when the leaders come through town, you go see their events. Uh, I mean, that's it. You just try and be as up on things as you very possibly can, and then when you do the job, you mm-hmm. try to be as absolutely scrupulously fair and neutral as you as you possibly can be. Because, as uh, you know, a guy named Mark Bulgutch, who used to work at CBC and who produced, I think, every debate that I was uh, honored enough to moderate, mm-hmm. and he he said to me, "You know, treat this like it's a hockey game, and you you want." you know, the day after the hockey game and you're reading the account of it in the newspaper, you don't want to see the referee's name. Mm. If you're reading the referee's name in the paper the next day, yeah. that's probably because he blew something. Yeah. So, you, you know, that's what you're aiming for. You want to be, you know, so excellent at the way you handled it that people are just talking about the magic moments of the debate and the candidates and not talking about how you screwed up. Fair enough. So that's what I've aimed for. Are, do you, are they still
0: important, these leaders' debates, in Canada?
1: Well, I think they are. I think it's the one opportunity. Well, traditionally, it has been the one opportunity, uh, maybe two, where uh, the citizens of the country can see the leaders going mano a mano, um, maybe for the one and only time during the course of the campaign. You know, they're all out doing their various campaign shots the rest of the time. This will be the one time they're actually in the same room Mm debating each other and you can really get a good measure of the person you can judge their policies you can judge their character you can judge whether you think they're really for you you, you just get a sense of them and of course not only the debate but then of course the clips that are played in the ensuing days from the debate the big mm-hmm. moments from the debate so you know on the one hand I think they still have a great potential to resolve elections on the other hand if you look what happened in the states oh. Hillary Clinton won every single debate and it turned out not to matter at all
0: and it didn't even matter yeah Do you have a favorite debate that you moderated?
1: Boy, tough question. (laughs) I mean, the first one was just so exciting because it was the first time I ever did it.
0: And which one was that?
1: That was, I'm thinking now, that was the uh, 2004 election where it was Paul Martin. Was that 2004? Oh, my gosh, isn't this awful? I can't remember now. (laughs) Well, it was Paul Martin, Stephen Harper, Jack Layton, Gilles Duceppe was the four of them. Oh, I. I think it was, oh God, this is terrible now. I can't re- you know what, what is it, 12.30 in the morning here? I'm having trouble. <laughs> I can't remember now if it was the lead up to the 2004 election or the lead up to the 2006 election. Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness gracious. It just shows and, you. And was that because it was your first one? Yeah, first time. I mean, yeah. I, I, I w- never had any, never in my wildest fantasy would I ever imagine being asked to do something like that. Yeah.
0: How nervous were you? Terrified, yeah? absolutely. Even during the...
1: Throughout. Oh, wow. Petrified. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, first, uh, this I'll never... This, I don't remember what year it was, but I'll never forget. You know, you, there's a teleprompter that has the script for the opening. Good evening, okay. everybody. Welcome to the Broadcast Centre, blah, blah, blah. We have here are the leaders, here are the rules. Here's what we're going to talk about. And as the teleprompter is rolling, something happens and it disappears. Oh, so, <laughs> My whole opening two minutes of script that I'm supposed to read off of the teleprompter in the camera is now vanished. Yeah. And fortunately, I had the script in front of me, and I just, I guess, sort of seamlessly looked down at my page and managed to just sort of keep going and find my spot in the, in the script and, and just kept going. And I guess nobody knew, but I knew, and I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding. This cannot be happening right now. But it was fine.
0: Nice. Um, Are there any, and you don't have to remember the date or anything like that, but I'm Mm. curious, are there any, um, you know, some of these clips that show up in the news are are often, you know, one-liners. Oh, yeah. uh, And things like that. Do you you remember any memorable? Yes.
1: Yes. Um, Jack Layton against Michael Ignatieff, where, I think that was the last one I did. It was uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper... Michael Ignatieff, leader of the Liberals, Jack Leighton, leader of the NDP. I think Gilles Duceppe was there as leader of the BQ, Bloc Mm -hmm. Québécois. Was Elizabeth May there too as well? I can't remember. Leader of the Greens? I can't remember now. Uh, And there was a discussion about attendance in Parliament. Okay. And somehow Michael Ignatieff and Jack Leighton got into it. And Leighton looked at Ignatieff and said you have the worst attendance record of any member of parliament in the House, and it seems to me that if you're going to ask people for a promotion, the least thing you can do is show up for the job. And that was a huge zinger, and Mr. Gnative, I guess, did not have a good comeback on that. No. And um, I, I'm sure that contributed to the fact that uh, for the first time ever, the Liberals came third, and, um, you know, the NDP formed the official opposition.
0: Yeah, I I actually remember that line. Um, That that was very, very powerful. That was a powerful line. Um, I wanted to ask about um, Justin Trudeau. Um, You know, before that, they were in third place, right? NDP was second. What do you, in in your, well, not really a question about him, but what happened to that? to the House of Commons where the NDP goes from second to third and the Liberals go from third to first,
1: in your opinion. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still, I think, a year later, it's hard to analyze because you're talking about something that's never happened before, where yeah. a party, you know, in 149 years of Canadian history, no one had ever gone from third place to government before, mm-hmm. ever. And you try to look back and think, what are the circumstances that allowed that to happen? Well, one of the things we know was... The Conservatives started the campaign at 30% in the polls, yep. and whatever it was, 76 days later, they were still at 30% in the polls. Mm-hmm. So they held their base, but they didn't grow at all. So essentially, this turned into a showdown then between the Liberals and New Democrats for, okay, since we don't want Mr. Harper, who do we want? Yeah. And for some reason, sunny ways carried the day. And People looked at Justin Trudeau, and enough of them. You know, I do remember there was a day in the election campaign where everybody had 30%. It was shocking. Yeah. Like, I think the it was like 30.9% to 30.5% to 30.1%. A three-way tie. I'd never seen it before in Canadian mm-hmm. history. And from that moment, which was very late in the in the campaign, the vote broke. And somehow, the Liberals picked up nine points, all at the expense of the NDP.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And part of it, I guess, was the niqab issue in Quebec. Yeah. Although the Liberals held the same position on the issue. hmm so why the NDP were punished so badly and the Liberals weren't? I, I'm not really clear on. Uh, certainly, Justin Trudeau projected the sunny ways that Wilfrid Laurier talked about um, all those years ago in that yeah. speech he gave in um, Eastern Ontario. And I think the you know the NDP ran a more cautious campaign. The NDP promised to balance the budget, you know, in the first year of an NDP government, which I don't know whether people, I guess they thought they had to promise to be fiscally prudent, whereas liberals who have a little more leeway on these issues, the promising to run deficits to kickstart the economy, the public gave them that leeway. As, you know, 15 different factors that all went into it, but it, at the end of the day, that's what happened.
0: It almost seemed that they switched playbooks. You yeah. know, usually it's the yeah. NDP that we're going to run deficits, and the liberals saying, we're going to balance it in a year or two or three. Yeah. So it's like they switched playbooks, um, which was really interesting. Uh, Well, it's happened
1: federally and provincially, you know, where the Liberal Party of Ontario and now the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, at key moments in the campaign, outflanked the NDP on the left. Yeah. Um, Liberals usually campaign on the left, but then govern on the right, right? They they campaign to the left, and then once they win, they move fast to the centre Mm -hmm. and take a much more conservative approach to governing. Yeah. Uh, Not so far here. Yeah. Not, so far, not in Ontario and not federally as well.
0: Yeah, it's very it's very interesting. You've, you have a lot of guests on your show, and you're usually you're, you're the one in the middle and you let the other people debate. So I want to ask you some of these questions that you've allowed other people to debate. I want to get your thoughts. You know, here in Toronto, we're talking about, you know, what's it going to take fiscally to support better transportation? Um, and one of the things that uh, our mayor, uh, John Tory, is now talking about, where before he was totally against, uh, was road tolls. Yep. I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on, on road tolls here here in Toronto?
1: Well, I, I, you know, it's probably not appropriate for me to weigh in on my view on it because <laughs> we covered this issue, you know, and we mm-hmm. actually, that was our program last night. We had John Tory on last night. We had yeah. Doug Ford on last night. We had a debate between um, the former chair of the TDC, Karen Stintz, and Martin Redcon from the Toronto yes, Star. Yes, I saw so it. that. So that was, yeah, that was the show. And, you know, it's not ready for me to say... Uh, did he make a good decision or did he make a bad decision? What I will say is, as yeah. a guy who sort of observes this stuff from sure. 30,000 feet, I will say it's a bold decision. I will say it's a gutsy decision. Mm-hmm. I will say it's a politically risky decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mayor has basically given, you know, some might say gift-wrapped mm-hmm. uh, an issue for Doug Ford to use against him for the next two years in the lead-up to the 2018 election. And, uh, Doug, in fact, Doug Ford, on on the interview that he did with me... Yeah. Uh, said I was going to run provincially, but with this toll issue now being introduced, uh, I'm reevaluating, and I think I'm going to run for mayor again and have a rematch against John Tory. So, you know, John Tory's approval rating is extremely high right now. It is, yeah. And so he decided to, you know, spend some of his political currency that he's had in the bank, and we'll see where it takes him.
0: Yeah, I, I want to ask you about the decision to have um, to have uh, to have Ford on. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a guest, um, and again, I'm you know I'm not privy to, to, to understanding how these decisions are made. And
1: well, I am, but there you go. So <laughs> so then you can let me know how how
0: it worked. Um, why have Doug Ford on and not somebody who who essentially um, you know he's in the public eye, but he's a private citizen, um, and not have somebody from council on who might oppose road tolls.
1: Okay, well, first of all, the Doug Ford interview was not an interview about Rolled tolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact is it was a book interview. And I have yeah. when I do interviews with people who've written books, you know, they don't usually come on with anybody else. They're one-on-one interviews. So that, yeah. no, you know, because I did see some pushback on Twitter about how could you have this guy on? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a bunch of reasons why he was on. Number one, he wrote a book. Yeah. And uh, he, he's he's a public figure. He's not a politician today, but he's yeah. certainly a public figure. He wrote, a bio- he wrote a, uh, an autobiography and a biography of his late brother, who was the mayor. So mm-hmm. all of this is in the public da- domain. Yeah. It is all in the public interest. So that's reason, number one, why yeah. we would have him on. Number two, he came second in the last mayor's race. He got 330,000 votes. Mm-hmm. Whether you like his politics or whether you don't, mm-hmm. that makes him a legitimate political figure worthy of having on a current affairs program to be interviewed. Um, And number three, you know, there were, besides interviewing about what was in the book, the tolls issue had just broken the day before, Mm -hmm. and so it seemed to me to make sense to ask him his views on that as well. And even though we're not a news show per se, and we don't sort of tend to try to make news, the reality is he did make news by saying he was going to switch his focus from the province to the city of Toronto. So that's why we had him on. Fair enough. Sounds good to me. Um, One of the
0: issues that, that came up after the U.S. election... Uh, to go back there, was this issue of giving equal time to both sides, mm-hmm. you know, giving equal time to Trump and Clinton, but really was the equal time in terms of you know putting a magnifying glass and saying, you know, Trump is saying all these racist, misogynist things and Clinton the emails. Um, and it seemed to me that it was always Clinton's emails, always Clinton's emails. Um, and it, there was a little bit about the Clinton Foundation. Um, I'm curious about the validity or the importance of uh, of the media, and you can give me your perspective on this, um, on, on needing to give equal time when issues are not necessarily equal?
1: It's a great question. It's this notion of false equivalency. Yeah. Um, you know, the media feel, it's very difficult to say the media, like they're all the same. They're not all the sure, same. yeah. But I can tell you that people who are sort of trained at journalism school and go work for a legacy media outfit, Feel a great deal of pressure and responsibility to keep things even. Mm-hmm. And so, if the, the story one day is Donald Trump's racism, misogyny, xenophobia, uh, we got to build a wall and mix, you know, the whole nine yards, then many people in the media feel an obligation on the next day to do something similar against Hillary Clinton, lest they be accused of being in the tank for Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly the emails and the foundation become, you know, big stories that have white-hot focus, even though, you know, they clearly, at least in the view of many, don't rise to the same level of seriousness as the issues that were surrounding Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But that's the false equivalency that many media feel burdened by. And I think it takes, you know, at some point there were many media outlets during the course of the campaign who just made a decision that, you know what, that's what we traditionally do, but we can't do that this time because, in fact, one candidate's, if I can use this word, sins, are so much more egregious than the other candidate's sins, Mm -hmm. we're just going to have to say that and point that out. Yeah. And, you know, I think the New York Times performed that way, the Washington Post performed that way. MSNBC performed that way. I mean, it's some, you know, what you might call normally liberal or progressive or left-leaning media outlets. Um, it's one of the real conundrums of daily journalism is how to how to treat two candidates who are vying for the same office when one of them, you know, when the excesses around one of them are clearly more egregious than the other. Yeah. And, you know, I think... It, I think uh, Secretary Clinton could make an argument that she was unfairly tarnished by coverage surrounding an FBI investigation surrounding emails surrounding the Clinton Foundation because media felt this burden of false equivalency mm-hmm. which which is a tough one to get over
0: yeah it's it 's so interesting when you 're trained to do one thing and then you yeah um, do people is is there a you know with you know one of the factors people said was um, you know, Trump was an outsider. Do people trust, like in your sense, do people trust these career politicians or even politicians anymore, you feel?
1: Well, I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question. I yeah. mean, the, the, the one line I heard about Donald Trump, which I thought was actually very, it's a really brilliant insight, was that nobody took what he said literally, but they took what he said seriously. And mm. by that, nobody expects him to keep all of his province, pr- promises to the letter, but uh, they were taking the issues that he talked about seriously and his commitment to doing something about those issues seriously. So that was the case for, for Trump. And obviously for Clinton, there was a different set of standards entirely. So I'll tell you what. It, uh, let me make the, uh, the analogy to the Conservative Party of Ontario. Okay. From 1943 to 1985, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party ruled Ontario. Forty two straight years. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons was, I think, we didn't have a kind of hothouse media atmosphere where, you know, you've got a million deadlines a day, you've got social media blasting out there all the time. You were actually able to sort of think issues through. There was a lot less screaming and a lot more thoughtfulness. Nowadays, the lifespan of a government or the lifespan of a politician just seems a lot shorter uh and as a result uh it's a lot harder to govern and as a result if you've got a a candidate like hillary clinton who's been in the public eye for 35 years that's tough it's really tough when Mm. everybody's looking for shiny new exciting bold and she's promising (laughs) sort of pragmatic steady experienced leadership yeah it's a tough sell for her And, uh, you know, I see this in Ontario right now with Kathleen Wynne. She's only been premier since, when, January to February, I guess, uh, 2013. Yeah. I mean, it's not even four years yet. And yet somehow it feels like eight. It (laughs) seems like a long time. In some respects, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because the hothouse in which politics takes place nowadays just sort of ages the candidates and the lifespan of a government Twice as quickly in some respects. We want the shiny new thing. Well, I, I don't know. If we get tired of them more quickly, or if yeah. it's just more difficult to stay on the positive side longer. It's yeah. tougher. I mean, you saw it with Stephen Harper. I mean, there was just a, you know, there was a, there, there was a shelf life. Yes. Uh, to that government, and um, there will be. There's obviously a shelf life to every government, but yeah. it seems to be a shorter shelf life shorter these days. Shorter, shorter. You've written tons of books, Steve.
0: Um, a know, lot seven a ton. A se- <laughs> I've, I haven't written any, so that's a ton. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, you, you but you, you know you've written about hockey. Uh, but a lot of books about political leadership. Um, you know your your last one about Bill Davis, talking about you know forty plus years, um, the PCs in in power and him being a big part of that. Um, what's your interest or fascination with with political leadership?
1: I guess I've always just had a hankering to know how these people do what they do. I'd mm-hmm. like to know the, how they make decisions. I'd like to know what it is about the life of a politician that appeals to them. Because uh, you have to know that every time we have an election in the province, there's 107 ridings up for grabs, which means if you multiply by, let's say, an average, you know, three, four, five candidates per riding, you know, there's five, six, seven hundred people who are running for office. Yeah. And 80 percent of them are going to lose. And hmm. yet there's still a lot of people who line up and are attracted to whatever it is that politics has to offer. And yeah. I'm intrigued by that. I, li- I like to know what the fascination with public life is all about. Mm-hmm. I know it's very fashionable to sort of poo-poo these people and to um, you know, be utterly cynical about their motives and so on. But I, despite having covered this for 35 years, I'm not cynical about what they do or how they do what they do. Some of them behave badly and some of them do stupid things. But I think in the main, in my experience anyway, most of them are there to do a job. They want to do it well. They all get elected for different reasons. Um, but I still respect the job. You know, The job mm. of a politician is, in many ways, a thankless job. And uh, I wouldn't do it. I'm glad there <laughs> are people who want to do it. And I just you know, have spent a lot of years trying to understand how and why they do what they do. In
0: your latest book uh, about Bill Davis... Um, there must have been some things that you learned about the man. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Is is there one thing that stands out?
1: One thing. Boy, the book is 590 pages (laughs) long, and (laughs) you want me to come up with one thing. Well, let's put it this way. There's a lot of politics of personal destruction these days, right? I mean, you don't just want to win elections. You want to destroy your opponent. There's a lot of that that's going on in politics. I mean, We just saw it in the last national election in the United States. I think what I like about the Bill Davis story is that Mr. Davis understood that everybody got elected to go to Queen's Park to do a job, and some of them got elected as conservatives, some as liberals, and some as New Democrats. But they were all elected to do the public's business and do things in the public interest. Mm -hmm. And he didn't demonize people who didn't get elected as conservatives because he recognized that they, too, legitimately won the most number of votes in their riding and therefore had a job to do there. And he had friendships on all sides of the legislature. Hmm. I always found it fascinating that when Brian Mulroney called Bill Davis in 1984 and asked for his advice on who would be a good ambassador for Canada at the United Nations, Bill Davis's answer was the leader of the NDP when he was premier at Queen's Park, Stephen Lewis. Right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine too many conservatives in this country today who would recommend their new Democratic opponent, uh, for a job, yeah. and yet that's the way it was. And I, and I think that just there was a civility mm. about the way Bill Davis did politics. There was a, um, a collegiality about it. Mm-hmm. And, and keeping in mind that he sat atop a minority government from 1975 to 1981. Wow. So he had to have friendships and workable relationships on all sides of the House in order to last that long mm-hmm. because you couldn't act like a dictator when you needed another party's support to have anything pass. And so he figured that out. And it was a genuinely democratic time in Ontario where the Conservatives would seek the support of the NDP to get some stuff passed or the support of the Liberals to get other stuff passed. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're missing some of that in public life today. I would
0: say, yeah. Um, would, would you consider him to be Ontario's most important premier or, or would, you, would you pick somebody else? Uh,
1: that, that's always such a tough one. I mean, how do you, uh, on the one hand, This is a name that may not mean much to a lot of your listeners, but Oliver Mowat was premier in the 19th century for 24 years. I mean, and very consequential years. He was there at the dawn of of Canada. Hmm. Um, You know, he and Sir Johnny MacDonald had some great fights back in the day in the 19th century. Uh, He was an extremely consequential premier for provincial rights. Um, You know, Bill Davis had an an incredibly uh, consequential premiership. He was the guy who I think um, was indispensable to the repatriation of our Constitution with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, Pierre Trudeau drove the bus, but Bill Davis was you know, <laughs> was right there uh, in the cockpit beside him, uh, helping him get that done. Um, you know, If you're a Catholic school supporter, uh, you have uh, full funding for separate schools today, all the way to the end of grade 12, because Bill Davis uh, yeah. made the decision to get that done. Uh, David Peterson and Bob Ray finished the job, but Davis started the job. Uh, we have a Sky Dome in downtown Toronto because Bill Davis made the decision to put it there. Uh, we have a whole community college system in the province of Ontario today because Bill Davis was the education minister who made it happen. Uh, we have OISE, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. We have TVO uh, because you know Bill Davis wanted to create these other educational opportunities. Mm. Five or six new universities that came in in wow. the 1960s on his watch. So consequential, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the most consequential? It's always hard to it's say. Hard to, yeah. Won four elections in a row, no one had done that since World War one. Yeah. no one's done it since you know he's got a pretty good resume this guy
0: I, I didn't see it in your in your bio as, as
1: I was research, researching uh, some of this, but do you do you teach it all? i do okay uh, I'm a visiting professor at Ryerson University, so right. I go down there from time to time and uh, try and impart a little bit of what I've learned over the years to the students there. I'm also Chancellor at Laurentian University in Sudbury. So I preside over convocation there, and I go up to Sudbury several times a year to uh, help them out with various events, and it's kind of like being the governor general in a way. It's a ceremonial <laughs> role, and uh, tons of fun, great opportunity to interact with students, and so, you know, it's a bit of that. What do you teach at Ryerson? Journalism. Okay. Yeah, broadcast journalism.
0: What about history? You say, like, you've got like this encyclopedic mind of, of Canadian history.
1: Uh, you know what? David Peterson, who was the 20th premier of Ontario, 1985 to 1990, I I, I once uh, saw him. This is several years ago. I saw him at something, at an event, and I said to him, uh, have you called Bob Nixon yet today? And he said, uh, why? Bob Nixon was his treasurer when David Peterson was premier. And his father, Bob Nixon's father, was also premier of Ontario in 1943. And I said, well, because 50 years ago today, he won his first election. And David Peterson looked at me and just shook his head and said, Pacon, you've got more irrelevant shit in that head of yours than anybody I know. <laughs> That's a quote from him. And I can't disagree with him.
0: Uh, um, tell, you know, as I was checking out the various books you read, I, th- I found the most fascinating one was the one about Mordecai Ronin. I don't oh, know if, I, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm pronouncing the yeah. name correctly.
1: Um, who is he? Mordechai Ronin is an 83-year-old survivor of Auschwitz. Yeah. As a 12-year-old kid growing up in Eastern Europe, he and his family were rounded up one day, stuffed into a boxcar, and transported to Auschwitz where two of his sisters and his mother were killed and where his father ultimately died, and he and his two brothers somehow survived. And the book that I wrote is the story of how he survived. And uh, I wrote the book, and I still don't know how he made it. Yeah. Um, I don't know how a 12-year-old child, I mean, it's a, it's a number of things, obviously. It's luck. It's an intense desire to survive. It's, I mean, it's so many different things. Uh, and yet he made it. He made it when 6 million Jews did not make it. Yeah. Uh, they went up the chimneys of Hitler's most systematic death machine in world history and so I wanted to write this book about Mor- Mordecai Ronan didn't tell his own family about his background mm-hmm. he did not want to inflict that burden of his own story on his own family mm-hmm. so many of them did not know the story and I'm a sort of a friend of the family and therefore at one point um, just by my own curiosity I started asking him questions about it and he started to answer questions about it That his own kids didn't know anything about. So you knew, like
0: even beforehand, as you were starting to ask him questions.
1: I knew he was a Holocaust survivor, but I didn't know. Oh wow! Okay. I didn't know any of the details. Yeah. I didn't know that he had, I mean, family members who died there, and neither did his children. He has two sons, Uh, neither of whom knew that they had aunts who perished in Auschwitz. They didn't know until I started asking. So eventually, Mordecai decided that he wanted to break his silence. He wanted to. He's taken on a new mission in life to educate the public about what happened 70-plus years ago mm-hmm. in those camps. And um, he's not going to be silent anymore. So we sat down, we did this book, uh, and um, it's called I Am a Victor. Yeah. And have I got 30 seconds to tell you why the please, title? Please, please, yeah. When Sean Cretchen was prime minister, he called Mordecai's son. Moish Ronin is his name, and he was the head of the Canadian Jewish Congress, which is like a community leadership group for the Jewish community. hmm And Chrétien's people said, do you know any Holocaust survivor that Mr. Chrétien could take to Auschwitz because Mr. Chrétien wants to be the first Canadian prime minister to visit Auschwitz? Mm -hmm. And Moïse said, well, of course, my dad is a survivor of Auschwitz. So, okay, they're going to make it happen. So they did. And as the limousine taking Mordechai and Jean Chrétien to Auschwitz gets closer, Mordechai gets cold feet. Mm -hmm. And he says, I can't do it. Turn the car around. I just can't do it. I can't go back there. Mm -hmm. And they're about the same age, maybe a year apart. Kretchen grabs his hand and says, Mordechai, we're going to get through this together. And sure enough, they did. They went to Auschwitz. They did the event there that they were supposed to do. Um, The media did interviews with Mordechai afterwards. And somebody asked him a question. He said, coming back to Auschwitz, where you lost your mother, your father, two of your sisters, don't you feel like a victim all over again? And Mordecai's answer was, the first time I came here as a 12-year-old child, I came stuffed in a boxcar. Now I come back to Auschwitz in the limousine of the Prime Minister of Canada. Victim? No. I am a victor. And I thought, when wow. I heard that story, I said, that's the title of the book. Yeah. I am a victor. And he sure is
0: Wow that's an amazing story that's really, really amazing um,
1: and if I should say parenthetically if anybody wants the book yeah. I am a Victor.ca. go online I think you can get it there there you go I am a victor um,
0: you host a popular show you're writing articles on the website um, you've got these best-selling books you've been moderating debates
1: um, what do, you, what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, I just came from playing hockey, hockey. So I do play hockey every Tuesday night. I yeah. like that. Uh, I adore baseball. I watch probably 150 Red Sox games a year.
0: I bumped into you walking to a baseball game Is that with, right?
1: your, with your daughter. Okay, yeah, yeah. I like to go to the Jays games. You know, it's great entertainment, and it's cheap, right? You can sit up in the 500 level for 12 bucks a ticket. And it's yeah. just great, and we do that uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, I think baseball is just a fantastic, civilized game, affordable. <laughs> yeah. We do a road trip every year. Nice. So I love doing that. And, um, you know, I don't really have a lot of time for... for uh, The great thing about watching a baseball game, or watching the Red Sox games. the Red Sox are my team, ever since before the Blue Jays were born, and uh, I can work, I can do my work for the agenda, you know, whatever it is, reading or going through questions or writing scripts or whatever, and have the ball game on just beside me on my iPad. So... That's a great way to sort of keep up with my team and and still get my work done at the same time. But that's, you know, that's it. They have a good young team, the Sox, do Oh, man. Quite, uh, I thought they were going all the way last year. I really did. Until the last week of the season, I thought they were going all the way. They won 12 games in a row, and then came the last week of the season where they lost six in a row, and they just ran out of gas, Mm -hmm. which was kind of disappointing. Your thoughts on David Ortiz? Uh, Greatest clutch hitter in Red Sox history. Uh, Honored to have watched him play. Honored, uh, maybe One of the greatest games, I mean, I was at the Joe Carter home run game in 1993, yeah. so that was phenomenal. But if I had to say the second most amazing game, uh, I would say American League Championship Series, Fenway Park, 2013, Red Sox trailing 5-1 in the eighth inning. David Ortiz comes up to the plate with the bases loaded, hits a grand slam home run. I'm not sure I've wow. ever been happier in my life. I've <laughs> had my oldest son with me. <laughs> He says he said to me after that game, I've never seen you happier than at that moment. I just was out of my mind with happy. Five all-score tied, bottom of the ninth. Jared Saltolamacchia comes up, hits a single over the left-hand side of the infield. Sox win 6-5. Unbelievable game. They, of course, go on to win the World Series that year. And, uh, oh, I'm just getting all teary-eyed thinking about it right now. It was just... Pure joy.
0: Do you think they sign uh, Edwin Encarnacion? That's sort of the, the place everyone has been talking.
1: You know, I'm sitting here in a studio in Toronto, and if I say if I say, I hope they sign Edwin... You've
0: already said you're a Sox fan, so I think that negates anything uh, else. If I say they,
1: I hope they sign Edwin, somebody's going to key my car, so I better not say anything about that.
0: Steve, I, I appreciate it this time. You you spend some time with me. What
1: time is it anyway?
0: It's, it's almost... It's five minutes to one.
1: Five to one a.m.? Yeah. Okay, i got to get up in four hours. I better get going. Thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> Nice to be here.